Christmas. Uh, if you're new, my name is Jamie. If we haven't met, uh, I'm the guy who most Sundays gets the privilege, the opportunity to open up the scriptures with God's people as we gather in this place, along with uh, a few curious people exploring the truth claims of Christianity. And my guess is that um, today that is no different. We're going to dive into the scriptures momentarily, but before we do, as we move into the month of December, Christmas bonuses start to come in. Um, people tend to become a little bit more charitable and generous in certain ways that uh, maybe we're not inclined the other 11 months of the year. Maybe it's just a, a little bit of a, a ramping up in that regard. And so I want to make you aware of, of a way that you can direct your generosity this month as we move toward the end of 2019. Um, we're going to put a slide up behind me. Uh, we are a part, as a church, of a network. Our affiliation is with a network known as the Acts 29 Network. That's spelled A-C-T-S-2-9, um, meaning that we are essentially a continuation of the book of Acts, uh, the church coming out of Scripture up to this point in human history. We are the continuation of Jesus' mission to, to build his church and to carry forth the gospel to the ends of the earth. You can read more about our network by going to acts29.com. You can check it out. Um, but I want to make you aware of something I mentioned back in August, and we haven't revisited since then, but this is an initiative that our network is, is looking to promote as we close out the year, I believe, between now and December 31st. They will continue to accept donations in this regard. But there's an initiative right now going on with our network known as the Thousand In for a Thousand initiative. And basically what that means is that our network is looking for a thousand people to contribute a thousand dollars so that we can come up with a million dollars, if my math is correct there, for the sake of church planting throughout the world. Basically, three, three points of focus with this initiative. One, um, impoverished urban areas where church planters will go and likely won't be able to fund themselves on the basis of tithes and offerings within their own congregation in order to sustain those churches. And so um, part of this effort is to help sustain those churches and get them off the ground and potentially support them for years to come in impoverished areas in the inner cities of the world. Um, secondly, rural areas throughout the world, again, where the likelihood of the tithes and offerings of those congregants are probably not gonna carry those church plants, and yet we want people in the rural areas of the South, the Southeastern U.S., um, Latin America. Uh, we could go all over the world and talk rural, but, but get, get the idea in your mind of these places that are least likely to be gone to with the gospel, um, the least glamorous places in the world. And then thirdly, um, highly Muslim concentrated areas is another part of this initiative where we're sending planters in. The likelihood of individuals or families being converted overnight is not high. You know, we're talking about planters who will go in and over the course of the first three to five years may see half a dozen converts, and that doesn't exactly carry a church budget. And so you begin to get this idea in your mind of what this initiative is about. It's about helping um, church planters and church plants throughout the globe to be able to remain on the mission field and do what they're doing to build Jesus's church and see the gospel go forth. And so if that's something that compels you, um, interests you, you can look in the bulletin and you'll find the website there. Uh, I believe there's even a QR code that you can scan with the, the camera app of your phone and it'll take you right to the page to give you more information about that. It's just something we wanna put in front of you so that you're aware that we love church planting, we love the, the mission of the gospel going forth to the four corners of the earth as a church. Uh, we contribute a tithe of our budget uh, constantly to the planting of churches throughout the globe and this is one way that you can get on board with that uh, in an individual sense as we close out 2019. That said, let's move on into 
the scriptures this morning. If you're joining us for the first time, uh, we're currently working our way through a sermon series that's going to carry us throughout the month of December all the way up to Christmas Eve, a series, as you can see on the screen behind me, entitled Unwrapping Christmas, the goal of which has been to do just that, to unwrap the story of Christmas, giving attention to some of the aspects of the story that are hidden underneath the wrapping, so to speak, to focus on some of the lesser known passages associated with the Christmas story, the ones that perhaps you would go and and Google sermon podcasts or online blogs and be less likely to find a lot of content with respect to. And we're coming into this with hopeful anticipation that, that God just might move in our hearts, revealing to us yet again the wonder of Christmas. Thus far, We've taken a look at Jesus's family tree as we began this series with one of those so-and-so begat so-and-so who begat so-and-so passages where we saw that the grace of God is so pervasive that, that even the begats of the Bible are dripping with God's mercy. We've also considered the coming of Jesus, the king of the Jews, going back to last week from the perspective of Herod, the king of the Jews, even going so far as to acknowledge the residual King Herod within us falling yet again at the feet of the one true King Jesus. This morning, we're gonna take a look at A Christmas Carol. And by that, I don't mean the story written by Charles Dickens, although that is a fantastic story, but rather the song sung by Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary's song of praise, a song that's come to be known as the Magnificat, the lyrics of which I'm guessing most of us probably don't have memorized, though perhaps we should because it's one of the most God-glorifying songs in all of the Bible. Speaking of the Bible, if you have one, you can open up to Luke chapter one. That's where we'll be this morning, verses 39 through 55. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, I think there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and use it during your time with us this morning. Uh, If you don't own a Bible or you have a difficult translation in your possession, you can have one of our Bibles as our early Christmas gift to you. Let me pray for us and we'll get after it this morning. Spirit of God, we are desperate for you this morning. Not only are we so easily distracted this time of year, caught up in the busyness of recipes to be made, parties to host or attend, our list of Christmas movies to get through and playlists, music lies to listen to, and and on and on we could go. Some of us come in this morning and Perhaps we find ourselves even struggling not to think of the next thing to do as we exit out of this place a few minutes from now. And so I pray that you would focus us in, Holy Spirit, that you would cast aside the distractions in our minds and that you would do what only you can do, which is to awaken our minds and hearts to the wonder of Christmas yet again no matter what age we are, as we come into this place this morning, you are the almighty God. You can do it. I believe you can do it. I believe you will do it. So please do it yet again. Awaken our hearts. Break in and break through. Refresh our hearts with with the wonder of this story of Jesus being born into the world so that we might leave this place with a song on our lips, with a song in our hearts, amazed yet again at at the wonder of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ Jesus, our Savior and King. It's in his name I pray, 
Amen. So Luke's gospel account, if you dive into the beginning of it, my guess is that you, you perhaps are more familiar with some of the, the beginnings of chapter one of that book of the Bible. Luke's gospel account opens with a couple of birth announcements. The foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist, the one who would prepare the way of the Lord, followed by the foretelling of the birth of Jesus, Christ the Lord himself. It's pretty amazing. Here you, you have the story of God's rescue mission, the coming of the promised Messiah, and the lens zooms in on two of the most unlikely people, an old barren woman by the name of Elizabeth and a young virgin girl by the name of Mary. As my two daughters would put it, both with babies in their bellies which in some sense should come as no surprise, being that it's what we see God do throughout the scriptures, right? Fulfilling his promises through the small, lowly nation of Israel, establishing a throne through the young shepherd boy, David, preserving the messianic line through barren women and younger brothers, not the firstborn sons, oftentimes. In this morning's passage, we see God continuing to do what God does, showing himself victorious in apparent defeat, Manifesting his power through weakness, both a barren and a virgin womb made fertile the miraculous feet of Almighty God. Beginning in verse 39, says, In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. In the womb of the once barren Elizabeth rested John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the one who would prepare the way of the Lord. Already we see in these verses, John the Baptist doing just that, preparing the way of the Messiah before he's even able to speak, announcing Jesus's presence by leaping in his mother's womb. And Elizabeth, we're told, was filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth stands amazed that she's a part of this wondrous story of redemption, which is really the ongoing theme of this morning's passage. Humble amazement, awesome wonder. She declares Mary to be blessed for her trust in God's promises and even more so for the privilege of bearing the Messiah so that Mary goes on to say, and here's where her song of praise begins, verse 46. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary's disposition, it's one of amazement, just like Elizabeth. A song of praise from a captivated soul. You might ask, well, well what is it that, that overwhelms her heart and causes her to sing? I mean, there are a number of things in this morning's passage, in this song of praise, but I'll point out just two. Number one, Mary stands amazed that God would rescue her from her sins. Might sound too simple to be 
true that we would even dive into that this morning. If God doesn't break through, we're without hope. That's the story of Christmas. We'd be left in the gloom and darkness of sin's curse under the yoke of oppression. And that includes even the mother of Jesus who sees herself as just as much a sinner as anyone else. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit, verse 47, rejoices in God, my savior. So that contrary to popular belief, Mary's conception in the womb of her mother, it was no immaculate conception, meaning that Mary was not free from original sin from the very start of her life. And yet Jesus didn't inherit a sinful nature on the basis of his his having been conceived by the Holy Spirit. So that the conception of Jesus in the womb of Mary was supernatural and miraculous. We need not argue the sinlessness of Mary in order to establish the wonder-working power of God. Like Mary herself refuses to do so, declaring her very own need for a savior. Wonder of wonders that Jesus would bear the sins of his very own mother someday. So I would say, if the Virgin Mary saw her very own need for a savior, how could we possibly think of the story of Christmas as a story of self-rescue? Some of us came in a couple weeks ago, perhaps, and we looked at that family tree of Jesus and we saw the story of Tamar and Rahab and David and Solomon and the many wicked kings that, that followed Solomon in the split of the kingdom into Israel and Judah. And some of us came in thinking, I'm too far gone for this God to rescue me. And we declared God's grace that you're not too far gone, that that there is no person that that God's grace cannot reach with the story of Christmas. Well, this morning, some of us come in on the very opposite end of the spectrum, thinking very highly of ourselves, thinking of ourselves through the lens of religiosity, thinking ourselves to be good persons, maybe not as good as Mary, but decent human beings. And the story of Christmas is for us too who think that way, to say that we're all sinners in desperate need of a savior, including Mary, including the most religious among us. This is not a story about intrinsic lovability or moral fiber. This is a story about God's grace. The Christmas story is a glorious rescue story of divine initiative that you and I are simply the recipients of God's grace. From the cradle to the cross, a light has shone into the darkness. The light of the world, Jesus Christ, a declaration that we're far more sinful than we ever imagined. Every one of us in this room, myself included, that we can never get to God on the basis of our own morality. Praise be to God that he came to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And wonder of wonders that he came not to condemn the world, but to seek and save the lost, including Mary, including you and me. What is it that overwhelms her heart and causes her to sing for one that God would rescue her from her sins? Remember the John Newton quote if you were around during the Sermon on the Mount series? Newton once said, if I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some I had thought to meet there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. That's the song of Mary. Wonder of wonders that I'm a Christian. Wonder of wonders that my name is written in heaven, that the child in the womb of Mary would go on to rescue you and me from our sins. In in the words of 
of one commentator, this perennial note of surprise is a mark of anyone who understands the essence of the gospel. So I would ask this morning, are you amazed that you're a Christian, a recipient of God's grace? Mary's spirit rejoices in God, her savior, that God would rescue her from her sins. But that's not the only thing that awakens Mary's heart. Secondly, Mary stands amazed that God would leverage her life for his redemptive purposes. That God would rescue me from my sins? Okay, that's one thing, hallelujah. That God would use me to glorify himself and further his mission? That's almost too good to be true. Verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Me of all people, says Mary. She, she humbly marvels at a God who would orchestrate his purposes through lowly people like her. Which God loves to do, by the way. He loves to leverage the lives of those of humble estate. Coming back to the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount those who see themselves as the least likely candidates. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says it this way, picking up in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That we could say it this way. God didn't just choose lowly Bethlehem to be the birthplace of the Messiah, but lowly Mary to be the resting place of the Messiah. And as Paul would go on to say, the hope of glory, Christ in you. Unbelievable. And just like her rescue from sin, God's willingness to leverage her life in this great story of redemption, it causes her heart to sing. Wonder of wonders, not only that, that God would save me from my sins, but would spend me for his glory. So that I would ask a second question, do you come in this morning feeling a sense of entitlement as it pertains to your role in God's great story of redemption? Or do you stand amazed this morning that you get to play any part in this story? That God would give you the honor and the privilege of participating in his kingdom work? Like wonder of wonders, not only that God would save me from my sins, but would spend me for his glory. Mary goes on to make this clear that, that this is not just how God is toward her, but how God is, period. Look at verse 50. It says, as Mary goes on to sing, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Notice that here Mary broadens the lyrics of her song beyond her own experience of God. This is a God who is not just with lowly Mary, but with the lowly. 
A God who lays low the proud and brings down the mighty. A God who exalts the humble and fills the hungry with good things. It's the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. We talk about it so often around here. Just can't seem to get away from those words, can we? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Again, we see it all over the pages of scripture. God fulfilling his promises through the small lowly nation of Israel, through the young shepherd boy David establishing his throne, preserving the messianic line through barren women, those born who are not the firstborn sons. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, who among us will celebrate Christmas correctly? Whoever finally lays down all power all honor, all reputation, all vanity, all arrogance, all individualism beside the manger, whoever remains lowly and lets God alone be high, whoever looks at the child in the manger and sees the glory of God precisely in his lowliness. You could say Mary's song is the song of the gospel, right? The song of ultimate triumph through seeming weakness. Nowhere more clearly displayed than in the seeming weakness of the crucified lamb, now the risen lion, the enthroned lion, the great reversal, the God of Christianity. He's a promise-keeping God who fulfills his promises through the lowly. And make no mistake about it, we've talked about this throughout this series, God always fulfills his promises. Mary knew that. You see it in the final lyrics of her song, verses uh, 54 and 55. She sings, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary was familiar with the scriptures, the word of God, the redemptive promises of God. And not just the promises that God had made to Abraham. See, you could look at verse 55 and say, well, Abraham's one of the more well-known characters in Scripture. Even the most biblically illiterate people could speak of Abraham. Mary's song here in Luke chapter 1, it's actually modeled off of Hannah's hymn of praise in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Not quite as well-known, Hannah, as Abraham in the story of Scripture. Hannah was a woman who, like Elizabeth, was unable to conceive, mistreated by other women on account of her barrenness. And as the story goes, Hannah prayed to the Lord in the distress of her barrenness, and the Lord heard her prayer and gifted her with a son, Samuel. And her response, like that of Mary, was to to essentially break forth into song, a song that Mary must have been incredibly familiar with. I'll put this up on the screen, the comparison between these two songs, Hannah and 1 Samuel 2, And Mary in Luke chapter one. Hannah says in her song, my heart exalts in the Lord. I rejoice in your salvation. Mary sings, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Hannah sings, there is none holy like the Lord. Mary sings, holy is his name. Hannah sings, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Mary sings, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Hannah sings, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. Mary sings, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Are the parallels word for word? No. No one would look to sue Mary for copyright infringement on the recording of her Christmas song. But... 
This is certainly a woman well-versed in the scriptures, make no mistake about it. So well-versed that when prompted to sing of God's goodness, glory, and grace, the lyrics of her song flow from the very pages of God's word. Mary was familiar with the story of redemption written in the scriptures, the word of God, the redemptive promises of God. And her knowledge of God's word informed her trust, trust in God and his faithfulness to keep his promises. See, Mary had learned from the song of Hannah that God humbles the proud and exalts the lowly, something that was now true of her own experience. Mary may have been surprised to to learn of her role in the Christmas story, but not because she was unfamiliar with the ways of God, but rather because she was among the humble and lowly. One thing's for sure, she wasn't surprised at all to see God fulfilling his promises. It's the disposition of the lowly, those of humble estate, a trust not in oneself, but in God and his word. God made a promise so very long ago to send a hero to rescue his people from their sins. The story of Christmas is the story of God making good on that promise. My prayer for us as we leave this place this morning when all is said and done is that God's goodness, glory, and grace would fill our hearts for the remainder of this week and on into Christmas with a song, one that sings like Mary of God's praises and magnifies his name, one that declares wonder of wonder on the one hand that I'm a Christian, and secondly, that I've been given the privilege of leveraging my life for the glory of this promise-keeping God. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship him in a number of ways as we do in this place week in and week out through our collective song as the the band returns to the stage and we sing songs to this promise-keeping God Together, our collective voice singing his praises, magnifying his name to use Mary's language. We'll also worship God through the receiving of communion. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. As you prepare to come and receive of the elements this morning, just pause for a moment like Mary and just declare to the Lord wonder of wonders that I'm yours.